0: Again, Father, um, I thank you for, <laughs> I thank you for you, and all that you are, and all that you have done, and all that you will do. Thank you for your word, and I thank you for revealing the gospel to us through your word. All of your word, the gospel is in it everywhere and I praise you for that and I thank you for that and I and I pray God that we would never we would never lose sight of that that Jesus it's 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 about you from the very beginning of your word to the to the very end. God I I pray and I ask this morning that you would glorify yourself as you continue to speak to us through your word that you would continue as a result to conform us Jesus in into your image, that we would be more and more like you, that we would hate our sin more and more, and that we would love you, hold on to you more and more, ever so tightly, moment by moment, day by day. Again, Lord, we love you, and we praise you. Ask these things, Jesus, in your name for your sake, for your glory. Amen. Okay, turn with me um, this morning to James chapter 5. This morning's sermon will be second-to-last um, sermon that I preach um, in James as far as this time around is, is concerned. Um, so we are nearing the end of James, and, and, and that being the case, I would ask that you would um, pray for me as I continue to seek God's direction and guidance as to where to go from here. I think I know where i 'm going, I do not believe um, that it will be a surprise at least to many of you. Um, it is going to be in the old testament so But if you would just just uh, pray for me over the next couple months um, as I um, begin to seek god 's direction um, for that and prepare as well for that so now, in this final section of james and we 're going to be looking this morning at verses thirteen through verse eighteen in this final section of exhortation, God, really through James, gives instruction to true Christians as to how they, how, how we, right? Because he's talking to us. I mean, he was writing this letter to them, but he's talking to us how we are to respond in all circumstances, especially suffering, especially spiritual suffering, right? And these responses are evidence of, of true faith. Now, now James doesn't specifically in this text say, hey, these, these responses are evidence of true faith. However, we know through this entire letter, right, he's been talking about evidences of true faith, right, faith that works. And we see that, and we're going to see that this morning in this passage, right? These things that he's commanding us to do, these things that he's instructing us to do are things that true believers should be doing. In fact, your life should be characterized by this. Does it mean At all times, we've perfectly done all these things, right? But if we were to take a a snapshot of your life as a believer, you could say that that's a characterization of my life or his life or her life. Now, I'm going to read, uh, again, 13 through 18. I'm going to give you the points for um, the sermon, and then we'll, we'll begin. Beginning in verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. As anyone cheerful, he is to sing praises. As anyone among you sick, then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So if you've got an outline, you can follow along with me. If not, I'm going to give you the points this morning so you can follow along as we go through this text. And the first point is this from verse 13. It's true faith responds to God appropriately in all circumstances. Or we could just say true faith responds to God in all circumstances. Second point from verse 14 through 15a is this. It's true faith seeks spiritual restoration. True faith seeks spiritual restoration. Verse 15b, our third point true faith leads to repentance. next point is this in verse 16a true faith leads to the mutual confession of sin and prayer our final point verse 16b through verse 18 is this true faith praise so beginning in verse 13 again he says is anyone among you suffering then he must pray is anyone cheerful he is to sing praises. Suffering, right? To endure hardships, troubles, or trouble, evils. Now, specifically, I think James might be referring back to, if you recall in this last section that we looked at, verses 5 through 11, he was talking about believers, those who have been and are being persecuted, right? But I believe, however, on a larger scale, he's referring to all types of suffering. And if we go all the way back to James chapter 1, verse 2. Remember what he said? He said, consider it pure joy, right? When you what? When you encounter various trials, okay? So on the broader scale, I think that's what James is is referring to. As you are going through these various trials, as you are suffering through these various trials, he says what? He says, pray. Pray. That's the appropriate response. So all the way back to verse one, uh, ver, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Right? Consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials. And here in chapter 5, he says, and pray. So our response should be to cry out to God. And then he says in the next part of chapter thir- or verse 13, he says, Is anyone cheerful? And sing praises. He uses one word in the Greek, and it's solo. Psalms. If you are cheerful, sing a psalm, right? Praise God. Now, concerning the first part of verse 13, right, that our appropriate response in the midst of trouble, in the midst of trials, in the midst of our suffering is to pray. Of course, we have the testimony of Scripture telling us, commanding us, showing us that, if you will, by example that that should be, must be our response to God. We see it with King David in Psalm Psalm 18. So in Psalm 18, verse 6, King David cries out, in my distress, in my suffering, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. And he heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry for help before him came into his ears. In Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We see Jesus in the garden. It says in verse 39, And he came out and proceeded... And as was his custom, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And the sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping f- from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So when we see the example from Christ, for what, right? Under this, this intense agony right, of what he was about to endure, right, the full wrath of God, we see him praying through the suffering, and then what does he do to the disciples, right? He rebukes them for not praying. What were they doing in their sorrow and in their suffering? They were sleeping, right? So in this this brief section, we see Jesus, right, doing it as we should do it, and then we see the disciples, right, who failed to do as they were commanded to do, as we are commanded to do, even from this verse, uh, uh, verse 13 in chapter 5 of, of James. Also in Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10 concerning the apostle, the apostle Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me and to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, what does Paul say he did, right? I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. He prayed, right? This thorn, right, this this suffering prompted Paul to pray. And he says again, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my, or for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, he says, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So here we have the Apostle Paul, right? In his weakness, right? In his suffering, he does what? He cries out to God. He prays. Again, as we are commanded in in, in James 5.13, And then yet, what does he do? Though God doesn't heal him of that thorn, doesn't take it away, whatever it was, what is is Paul's response? He sings praises because he's considering it pure joy. This various trial that he is enduring, that he endured this thorn in the flesh, led Paul to pray. And then out of joy in Christ, led him to praise God. I don't believe that these two conditions are mutually exclusive. And thinking all the way back again to uh, chapter one, verse two of James, consider it pure joy as you are what? As you're suffering. So as we're suffering, we cry out to God for help. And in our joy through that suffering, we do What? We sing praises to God. We see that in Acts chapter 16 regarding Paul and Silas as they were in prison. Turn with me to Acts 16. We'll begin in verse 22. It says, The crowd rose up together against them. That is Paul, the them being they, uh, Paul and Silas. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were what? They were praying. They were suffering. And they were what? They were praying. And then what were they doing? They were singing hymns of praise to God. It says, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And they called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So we see in this example with Paul and Silas in prison, right? They were suffering, and they cried out to God in prayer. And they sang praises because they considered it pure joy as they suffered this trial of a various kind. So how do we respond when we find ourselves in those circumstances? Again, I don't believe they're mutually exclusive, but that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be times when we're suffering, right? And we, we should be crying out to God, and maybe we haven't come to that place of pure joy yet to sing praises to God. Or maybe there's something else going on in our life where there is no suffering attached, right? But we are cheerful, we are joyful, right? And we should be, again, in those circumstances, singing praises to God. But is that how we normally respond? Is that, is that how you normally respond? Let me ask you this. Is, is that your first response? See, examining myself and and thinking back at those times in my life when when I have been suffering, right, enduring various trials, when, when something has happened that has brought me joy, right? What is my first response? Usually my first response is this something bad happens, and the first thing I do is I call my wife or I call someone else to complain. And I'm angry and I'm mad and I can't believe this is happening. Can you believe this is happening? They did this. I'm going through that. And usually my second response is repentance because the very first thing I should have done is go to God and cry out to him and say, Lord, I need you to sustain me through this. If it's your will, I want out of it. But if it's not, I'm okay with that. Make me okay with that. But no, usually I go to someone else first. I call Randy. And I'm like, you'll never believe it. And then afterwards I say, oh, Lord, forgive me because I completely left you out of the picture. The same thing when there's something good, right? When I have reason to be joyful or cheerful, something fantastic has happened. Maybe, maybe it's something specifically and directly God has done as a result of me petitioning him for something, and it happens, and what's the first thing I do is I call my wife or I call Randy or I call someone else and I tell him you'll never believe it. This is fantastic. And I'm so excited and I'm so grateful. And then the second thing I do is usually repent because I should have gone to God first and praised Him and thanked Him for what He has done. So what is it that you do? We know what we should do. We should cry out to God and we should praise Him. And then we run and tell someone. Now, as we move from verse 13 to verse 14. Really, 14 through verse 18. I want to say that I believe that this passage of Scripture is most often misinterpreted, misunderstood, misapplied. And I am going to do my best God, through me, I pray and I trust is going to do this, right? To to handle this section with much grace. See, if we isolate this passage from the rest of James, and I'm going to read it for you. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered and faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins they will be forgiven him therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit when I isolate that passage of scripture from the rest of James, and I forget the context of the rest of the letter, okay? When I turn off my, my critical thinking, and I read that passage, here's, here's what I read, right? So, um, if you're sick, and you call for the elders, and they put oil on your head, right? As long as I have enough faith, then I'll be healed, okay? because that's what it says. I mean, just just a casual light reading, taking it, uh, again, without context, without critical thinking, of the rest of the testimony of Scripture says that if I'm sick and I call on the pastors to come put oil on my head and I've got enough faith, it says that God, God will heal me, right? Also says that if I confess my sins to you, we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, right? It says we'll be healed as well. So if I'm sick, and I come to you and I say, let's pray together, let's confess our sins, then, then we're going to be healed as well, because it says it, it, says it right here. Um, and then it further goes on to say, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So as long as I'm righteous and I have enough faith, then my prayers can accomplish what it is that I seek for them to accomplish. Furthermore, we've got the example of Elijah. I mean, if he can make it rain, right, and he can make the rain cease, then I surely can do the same, right? That's what this text is saying. Of course, that's not what this text is saying. doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, let's for a minute go back to context, put our thinking caps back on, and read this passage, okay? And this is, this is what I came to when I first started to study this passage. I read this passage. I'm like, what does this have to do with James? Something about sick. I mean, where, where does this fit? Right? Now we know physical illness, right, is definitely a various trial that James talked about, chapter one, verse two. But what has he been addressing throughout this entire letter? Has he has he addressed up to this point other than various trial? Has he addressed any any form of illness, Entering anyone suffering with any type of physical malady or, or anything? No, he hasn't. It, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. And so I come to this point. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's something in this passage that's, that's not adding up. My, my assumption is, right, there's something that's been lost in translation from the Greek to the English, right? Something contextually that, that we're missing because of that, right? James has been addressing what? He's been addressing spiritual issues this entire letter, right? Spiritual problems, right? Individually, right? Corporately, okay? So this passage has to have something to do with that because the other doesn't fit. So I submit to you now, and we're going to look at it here, that what James is addressing in these verses, okay, is not physical illness, okay? Not physical conditions, but spiritual conditions. And within the context of this entire letter and what he's been addressing throughout this entire letter, that's the only thing that makes sense. My next point, again in verses 14 through 15a, is this. It's that true faith seeks spiritual restoration. And again in verse 13, I'm sorry, in verse 14, he says, is anyone among you sick that he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The word for sick in Greek that he uses is as- asthaneo, asthaneo. And it literally means to be weak. Now in the Gospels, right, that word asthaneo It's typically used to refer to physical illness, okay? However, in Acts forward, Acts in the epistles, that Greek word, astheneo, right, is used to refer to weak faith or weak conscience. We see it in Acts chapter 20. So in Acts chapter 20, verse 35 It says, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak, ask the, nail, the same word there as used in James 5.14, to help the weak, ask the nail and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We see it in Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, verse 1 says, Now accept the one who was astheneo, weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. We also see it in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the astheneo, the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he has astheneo, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. For through your knowledge, he who is astheneo, he who is weak, is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ Died. One, if this word that James uses, astheneo, in James five fourteen, is used to mean physically ill, it would be the only place from Acts to Revelation that I'm aware of that that word astheneo is used to refer to one who is physically ill. Now. I want to say this i'm not saying okay because there are many there are many there will be many who will use this passage to say well listen we're supposed to pray for those who are physically ill right according to james chapter 5 this is what we're supposed to do and praying for those who are physically ill okay i'm not saying that we are not to pray for those who are physically ill right Testimony of scripture is that we are to pray for those who are physically ill. We see it in first in 1 Kings. First 1 Kings 1721. In 1721, Elijah, right? He says that he stretched himself, he being Elijah, stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray to you, let this child's life return to him. Now, granted, the child was dead, right? But Elijah prayed for him, right? And God miraculously raised him from the dead. But we have that example of Elijah praying for this boy. We see it in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter nine verse forty, it says Peter praying, praying for Dorcas or Tabitha. Again, Acts nine verse forty says But Peter sent them all out, and he knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body he said, Tabitha arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. We see it in Acts twenty eight eight. In Acts eight eight, we have Paul praying. It says, And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery, and Paul went in to see him. And after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. Right. So we've got three, and those are just three isolated instances in Scripture. We know there are many more where we have this example of praying for one who is sick. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Those requests should include the prayer for those who are sick. So we are to pray for those who are sick, okay? Very important that we pray for those who are sick. We do that here. We've done it many times. We'll continue to do it. However, James chapter 5, verses 14 through 18, is not the text that we go to when it comes to praying for the sick because he's not dealing with the physically ill by asphaneo, Okay? He's dealing with the spiritually ill. The one who is spiritually weak. The one who is spiritually afflicted, run down, wore out, discouraged. That fits, doesn't it? I I, I hope you see that that fits, that, that spiritual sickness, if you will, those spiritual conditions fit with the rest of the letter. He's dealing with those who have been treated partially. If as a believer you walked into a a church and you were told to go sit back by the toilet because you weren't worthy enough to come out here and sit with the rest of the congregation, right? could that not lead to your spiritual discouragement? Absolutely. He talks about those who were praising God with their tongue and also cursing men with that same tongue as a believer? if Someone in this church was standing up here, hallelujah, praising God, and then back there was talking bad about you. Could that, would that possibly not lead to your spiritual discouragement? Wear you out? Absolutely. He addresses quarreling and fighting and conflicts among you, and I know many of us have dealt with that, and many of us will deal with that among this body, amongst other believers, and has that not worn you out spiritually? It it has me, and I know for many it has you as well. So it makes sense that this is what James is talking about in chapter 5, those who are spiritually sick in the sense of, again, discouraged, exhausted, worn out, down, disheartened. But physically ill? Again, it doesn't make sense when we consider the rest of the letter and what he has been addressing. So again, he says, says, um, is anyone among you sick then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. He says if you're sick if you're spiritually down fill in the adjective whatever you want to use okay you're spiritually there. He says call for the elders. This is a call on the elders for help for intercessory prayer right is we're going to pray for you to call on the elders for help that is for support for strength for encouragement for edification that's what we need isn't it when we find ourselves in those low spots spiritually, what do we need? What do we want? We should want to be edified, to be lifted up, to be held up, to be encouraged spiritually. Not, well, you're just a wonderful person. Just feel good about yourself. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking spiritually building you up by, I know if you're talking with Randy and I, we want to spiritually build you up by pointing you to the cross, reminding you of the glorious good news. I know last week, and I I wasn't here, and I I haven't. I'm sorry, Randy, listened to your sermon yet from last week. Um, I intend on it, though, but I know that, that he was talking about, in part, what, pastoral ministry, I believe, pastor's role, okay? We, as pastors, Randy and I, are to care for you spiritually. And we do care for you spiritually, okay? We desire that. But you have to be willing to let us do that. When you find yourself in this place of spiritual lowness, uh, sickness, if you will, and you don't come to us, then how how can we care for you? First Peter, Peter charging other pastors, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Well, How how can we, how can Randy and I do that if you don't come to us when you're in this place? We, We want you to come to us, but further than that, God in part commands you to do that. Not because we want to be all in your business, right? But because we care for you spiritually. And God has given us the role to care for you spiritually. Now, just a side note, real quick. It has nothing to do necessarily with what we're talking about. But I do want to point this out. And uh, I don't know if it's something Randy addressed or not in, in his sermon last week, but it is something I know we've addressed in the past, and we will address in the future, and I just, I just want to point this out. He says that he must call for the elders of the church, okay? Again, James is not, in this case, arguing, right, for the plurality of elders, right? He's just pointing out what's obviously there in the many New Testament churches that he's addressing, that there's more than one pastor, okay? Again, just want to kind of a side note, point that out, okay? We have that, obviously, in our church. We desire that. And again, it's for God's glory and for your your good that that is so. So again, he says in 14 and 15, again, if you're sick, call on the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, over you. It says, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I've never anointed anyone with oil, like literally, physically done the, okay, and many of you have probably never had your head or body anointed with oil okay i do not believe in this passage that james is expecting us that god is expecting us to literally anoint your head with oil when you come to us for prayer okay for for support for encouragement for edification that james is using this Metaphorically, now, anointing, right? There was a ceremonial anointing of oil in Scripture, okay? And we see that, I just want to point that out briefly, in Exodus um, 29, verse 7. And you shall take the anointing oil and pour it over his head and anoint him, right? There's this relationship, if you will, and, and I haven't really studied it much, so forgive me if I get it partially wrong, but this kind of uh, a metaphorical relationship, if you will, between anointing one with oil and the ministry, if I understand, of the Holy Spirit, okay? Ceremonial, okay? Okay? But then there was an anointing with oil, and we see this in Scripture, and we're going to look at numerous numerous references, right? Um, but there was this anointing with oil that had to do with physical healing and restoration. Start in Mark, Mark six, thirteen. Mark 6:13 says and they these were the 12 apostles that were sent out they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. We see it in Luke Luke 7:38 And standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet his being jesus here okay wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them my version says here with perfume yours might say i think the esv says ointment probably an olive oil based something okay we see it in luke 10 34. In Luke 10, verse 34, it says, and actually, I'm going to start in verse 30. Jesus replied and said, Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. Likewise, a Levite also When he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So concerning the parable of the good samaritan, the good samaritan cared for this man by what? By anointing him with oil. Matthew 6:17. Matthew 6:17 says, "But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face." In this case, not so much for healing, but for restoration, rejuvenation, physically here, okay? Now, olive oil, I didn't know this, but olive oil actually has many medicinal uses. Many things specifically dealing with the scalp, or could be dealing with the scalp. Medicinal use of olive oil includes soothing your ache, Includes helping or to help treat with life. It can help heal minor wounds and burns. It can even be used to treat psoriasis. And of course, in our day and, and, and our many, many processed type goods, if you will, there are some that have extracts and other things from olive oil used in them to help within that rejuvenation products as far as hair care and stuff like that. So again, in this section, we're dealing with the spiritually weak, right? Not the physically ill. So here's what James is saying. James is saying that the spiritually weak is to call upon the elders of the church for prayer, encouragement, and edification for the purpose of spiritually treating as one would physically treat with oil, right? He's using it metaphorically, okay? Referring to the spiritual treatment and care for that individual, that that person may be what may be cleaned restored and refreshed that's what the olive oil that's what the physical use of the olive oil was often used for when it was anointing the head with the oil it was to to clean up okay it was to restore it was to refresh that they might be physically healed and again James is saying you you do this okay for your spiritual restoration, if you would. Now, I I do want to point out this. Again, James, in in this section, I am convinced he's not dealing with physical illness, right? He's dealing with this, this spiritual, again, sickness, if you will, right? However, we do know that there oftentimes are physical manifestations right, of spiritual conditions. When I get nervous and anxious, right, I get sick to my stomach. And I'll be sick to my stomach sometimes for days, right? And and that nervousness and that anxiousness, right, that's a result of a spiritual condition of not, at least in my case, of not trusting God, not relying upon him, okay? And there are very real physical manifestations of that, and there could be many physical manifestations of that, even those that could be treated with anointing one's head with olive oil, okay? So I don't want to discount that. Again, however, James, as he has been throughout the entire letter, is continuing to address spiritual condition of the believer and not the physical condition of the believer. Now back in chapter 5, verse 15, and he says, again I'll start in 14, if anyone among you is sick, then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, if you have the ESV, it says in the prayer offered in faith, will save or something along those lines, right? Again, how, how does save, I mean, from a salvific standpoint, how, how is that even remotely or how does that even remotely fit with, with physical illness? It, it doesn't. The idea is to be restored and to be restored spiritually. I would, I would wager that most of us have known many of faithful believers who have suffered physically, right, who, who have prayed, who have prayed fervently in faith for God to heal them. We have prayed fervently, right? on their behalf, for God to heal them, and he didn't? Well, if we want to take this passage at at, at the face value of, well, they're talking about physical illness, right? Well, then apparently that person didn't have enough faith, and you didn't have enough faith. But when I, at least those that I know that have been in that condition, right? Physically ill, fervently prayed for God's healing. we fervently prayed for God's healing and he didn't heal them. Okay. A couple in particular that I know that God called home. I will tell you this, spiritually, in their condition and her condition, the one whom I'm thinking of, spiritually, she was a rock and she was solid because God kept her And he restored her when she needed restoring. That fits, doesn't it? That fits within this passage. The other doesn't. So he says, In the prayer offered in faith, will save, ESV, or restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Again, to restore, to save, that is to deliver from their suffering, spiritual weakness. You see, the truth is this. Restoration. Again, spiritual restoration. And we have this from this passage. Spiritual restoration is assured if we follow God's instruction concerning spiritual suffering and weakness. Physical healing is not. Point to one passage in scripture where physical healing is assured if we follow some, some special prayer, or some special pattern, or if we have enough faith. But spiritual suffering, right, or the restoration of spiritual suffering is guaranteed if we follow God's pattern and God's plan. What we have here, and I, and I love it, is we have a, a pattern to follow that James gives us in this passage. Really starting in verse 13, Okay, we have a pattern to follow concerning spiritual restoration and we're, we're watching it unfold as we go through this section. Okay, And the first step in that pattern or that plan, if you will, uh, that plan of God for spiritual restoration, the first step is this. It's to what? It's to go to God in prayer. Verse 13, right? Is anyone among you suffering then what he must pray step number one step number two we see it in verses 14 and 15 is anyone among you spiritually weak part of that suffering in chapter 13 and verse 13 then what then go to your pastors so go to god step one Go to your pastors. Step two. He says if you do that, he will what? That one will be raised up, aroused, to cause to rise spiritually. In verse 15, we see the next point, but really the next kind of step or part of one of the steps brought out, if you will, in God's pattern for the spiritual restoration, and it's this. It's that true faith leads to repentance, and this is 15b, okay? And in verse 15, it says, In the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, if he has... Committed sins. I believe that there is a, a relationship, okay, between sin and this place of spiritual weakness, sickness. Again, whatever you want to use to describe that, there is. I believe again a relationship between the two. Now, this this position that you're in. Maybe you find yourself um, just spiritually downcast, weak, far from God. Maybe somebody has done something to you, and that something that they've done to you has, in part, led you to this place, right? You came in, right? You were shown partiality. They put you back by the toilet, as opposed to up front, going back to, what was it, chapter 1, chapter 2 of James, right? And because of that, it, it, it has supposedly led you into a place of Spiritual depression, spiritual sickness, okay? Now, you did nothing wrong to have been right, put back there by the toilet when you came in. However, I do believe that when we find ourselves encountering those various trials, when instead of turning to God and trusting in Him and relying on our promises we withdraw from God, and when we withdraw from God is when we find ourselves in these spiritual funks, if you will. And that is sin. So I do believe there is a relationship between sin and, and, and the spiritual lowness, if you will. Okay? That our sin often leads us to these, these places of spiritual lows. And I'm, I'm saying that's the case always okay? So, so, so understand me. I'm not saying that, that, that that's always the case. If you find yourself spiritually downcast, it's because you have, in one form or another, experientially sinned, and it's put you in that place. However, I do believe many times that is the case, okay? But it says here, if, if that person has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Now, not forgiven by the elders, of course, right? I mean, of course, no man, no man can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. In fact, this, this statement has nothing to do with the forgiveness of sins concerning salvation, does it? I mean, let, let's think about that for, for, for just a moment. Um, um, let's let 's think about the the gospel really. Um, we have sinful man right sinful man who 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 is born right spiritually dead right deserving of god 's holy and righteous wrath and it is it is righteous and it is just, and every person that has ever been born deserves hell. And here we have, we have God, who is, who is a just God, and yet this just God is, is also full of grace and mercy and, and compassion. And this just God sent His Son, who in fact is God, God the Son, to earth to live the life that the sinner couldn't live, to die the death that the sinner deserved. He was crucified, buried, on the third day rose and then ascended into heaven. And the fact that that sinner, spiritually dead, repents, turns from sin, and in repenting, turns then to the one who lived the life that he couldn't live, died the death that he deserved, right? Jesus, turns in repentance and faith to Jesus, then God forgives that person's sin. Not on the basis of that person's repentance or faith, but on the basis of Christ's work. And when God forgives that sin, he forgives what? All of it, doesn't he? All of it. If you are... A believer, all of your sin has been forgiven. Past, present, future, right? As far as the east is from the west, your sin is gone before God. That doesn't mean that he he knows we sin, right? And he sees our sin, right? But he doesn't hold it against us. He won't hold it against us, if you are a believer. He can't hold it against us because it's already been held against His Son in our place. And as a result of that, now when this righteous God looks at us, He sees His perfect and His holy and His righteous Son, not our sin. So this this statement, James is talking to believers here, okay? And this, this statement is not regarding being forgiven in relation to, or in relationship to salvation, okay? Really what this statement is, again, the statement here in the latter part of 15 that says, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... They will be, or they will be for, forgiven. Him, right? It's really a statement regarding repentance and not salvation. See, repentance isn't a one-time thing, is it? If, if you believe, or if an individual believes that repentance is a one-time event, hope oh, I repented and I'm done with that, and now I go on and continue living, that I would be afraid that that person might not be saved. see, we repent, right? At the moment of conversion, we repent, and we believe, and God forgives us again of all of our sin. But yet the believer, the true believer is to continue repenting through the remainder of your life, however short. See, if on the cross it was very short. There are many who it might be decades, but that we continue to repent. In fact, I think the issue of repentance is, is probably one of the greatest issues or one of the greatest things to talk about concerning assurance of one's salvation. If, if you were to come to me and say, I don't know that I'm saved. How do I know that, I sa- that, I, that I'm saved? I wouldn't ask you, well, do you remember at one point saying a prayer? You know, I definitely wouldn't ask you that. Do you remember, you know, saying a sinner's prayer? You wrote it in your Bible and, and you're, you're, if you said it, you wrote it down, you remember it, you're good. Because many of us don't even remember that. And I'm one of them. And I know there are several in here that have no clue when they were saved. That's me. I don't know when God saved me. How do I know that I'm saved? How would you know that you're saved? It's not that you repented once, but it's that you continue to repent. You continue to turn from that sin, though it's been forgiven. You continue to turn from it and continue to turn to Christ more and more, day by day. And I believe this latter part of verse 15 is referring to the continual Repentance of believers. So, again, let's consider the progression, if you will, in God's plan for those who are spiritually weak, sick, whatever, right? They cry out to God. Verse 13 If you're suffering, pray. Verse 14, they seek pastoral care and counsel. Verse 15, they experience restoration. Again, that's the spiritual restoration of the believer. Here's where repentance fits in. If you have committed sins, right, leading to this condition, in verse 13, when you cry out to God for rescue, you should cry out to God in repentance. And then going to your pastor and seeking prayer, encouragement, edification, then should be evidence of one, you're crying out to God, not just for help, but you're crying out to God for repentance or in repentance. And I can tell you, if you come to me or if you go to Randy and you say, I, <laughs> I'm i in this funk spiritually and I need help, the first thing Randy's going to say or the first thing I'm going to ask you is, have, have you taken it to God? I mean, you're coming to me and I'm glad you're coming to, coming, coming to me. You're coming to us. Okay, because we want to care for you spiritually. But have you cried out to Him yet? And if your answer is no, then my response and Randy's response is going to be, you need to go to God first. You need to cry out to Him. And then if you say, yeah, I have. I've cried out to God, but here's what happened. And if it's sin, I'm going to say, have you repented for that sin? Have you turned from that? And if you say no, then I'm going to say, You need to cry out to God for rescue and repentance. And then come to us for that that edification, that spiritually building up, if you will, as we seek to hold you accountable. So again, we see this plan that includes crying out to God if it's a result of your sin, the suffering, crying out to God for rescue, for help, crying out to Him in repentance turning to your pastors who love you and who want to care for you spiritually. And God says, if you do that, He says, I'm faithful and I will restore you. In verse 16, we see this. We see that true faith leads to the mutual confession of sin and prayer. It says in verse sixteen, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. We're going to look at sixteen a so just that first part of sixteen again, if James is talking about physical physical sickness here, I mean there's something that just doesn't add up. If he's talking about physical sickness then we 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 are forced to come to the conclusion that okay. If I'm physically ill, and I have enough faith, right, and I confess my sins to you, and we pray together, then God will heal me, right? I mean, that, that's what the verse says. So if that's what it says, then that's going to happen. So we're going to get together and pray, and God's going to take away my, my diabetes. or I, I'm not diabetic, but whatever the case might be, okay? I mean, that, that's the conclusion that we, that we must take if we believe that this passage is dealing with physical illness. Right? But we know that that's ridiculous, right? Because, again, we know many faithful believers who have suffered horrible physical illnesses that God has never healed. It doesn't mean that they weren't faithful. It doesn't mean that they weren't repentant, okay? Again, this passage is dealing with the spiritual, not with the physical. Again, this passage, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed, okay? This passage emphasizes, okay, emphasizes a couple of things, okay? It it emphasizes the importance of accountability and the importance of prayer in one, keeping us from these spiritual low points and two, restoring us when we find ourselves in these spiritual low points. Accountability is something that every single one of us should de- desire. We should desire to have, as believers, we should desire to have another believer, right? That we can go to, right? That we can be open and honest with. Someone that, that we can confess our sins before, right? Someone that will hold us accountable, right? Not only for those sins, but but the struggles, the temptations that maybe we're dealing with, Okay? And that will also lift us up in prayer, okay? And if, if, if I'm going to say this, it doesn't matter if you're married or you're single, okay? And there is accountability between husbands and wives, okay? But I believe that we need accountability among um, individuals of the same sex. So if you're married, yeah, you need to, this, this needs to be going on between you and, and your wife, okay? But I'm going to tell you, you also need this if you're a woman, with another woman, okay? If you're a man, you also need this with another man, along with your spouse, right? I had someone come to me a couple weeks ago, and he said that very thing. Not in a spiritual low point, okay? Not at all. Not there. Not, not right now. But he came to me, and he said, "Man, you know, I would love to have someone to meet with, right, that, that can hold me accountable, Okay? Someone to meet with that I, can, that I can pray with. Someone to meet with that will pray for me and hold me up that I might not fall into this position, right? Would you do that? And when he asked me for that, I thought to myself, wow, you know what? I need the same thing. I mean, I get it from Randy, okay? And Randy gets it, gets it from me as well, okay? But I need it. And the guy that came to me, he needed it. We both needed it. You need it for the purpose, right, of prevention, right? Preventing us from falling into this, 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 this spiritual place of lowness or weakness or, again, whatever, right? But when we find ourselves in that position, okay, we also need that accountability, right? And again, you need to confess your sins to God first, okay? You need to cry out to him first, right? And as he is restoring you, as you are following his plan, if you will, through this passage, right? You can go to your, your friend, right? Your brother, your sister, your spouse, whatever it is, right? Your accountability partner, right? You say, listen, this is where I have failed. I have, cons- I have confessed my sin before God and I'm confessing it to you, not because you can forgive me, right? But I'm confessing it to you because I need someone to hold me up in prayer and an accountability, because I want to be kept from that. The last point is this. It's the true faith praise. Verses 16b through 18. It says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. This isn't a name it and claim it verse, right? We we, kind of see it taken to that. that, that, I mean, again, if you want to deal with this passage and say it's physical illness, let's take it to the logical conclusion and say, well, you know what? That means just like Elijah, we can pray for mighty and great things. And if we have enough faith, just like Elijah did, we can, we can make it rain. We can make the rain stop. Well, we had a pretty bad drought last year. And there were many people praying for rain, not just across uh, Oklahoma, but across this entire region, right? So if this passage is true concerning physical illness, right? Concerning how great our faith can be to, to, to make it rain and make it stop raining, then the truth is. No one within this region at least has enough faith. Okay. But again, that's not what this passage is referring to, right? Again, it's emphasizing the importance of prayer and the spiritual restoration of the weak, right? It says Elijah was a man with a nature like us. What does that mean? Right? It means he suffered. It's what it means. It means that Elijah suffered trials of various kinds. He was hungry, 1 Kings 17, 11. He was afraid, 1 Kings 19, 3. And he was depressed, speaking specifically of his spiritual condition, 1 Kings 19, 3 and 9, 14. And what was his response? He prayed earnestly, didn't he? And incredible things happened. That's the point. The point is, is he suffered like us, found himself spiritually low like us, like we've been, like we will be. And his example is that he turned to God and cried out to him for deliverance, cried out to him for restoration. So if you're spiritually weak, and you're worn out, and you're tired, and you're exhausted, and you respond to God on His terms, right—the terms that He has laid out to us here in James chapter five, right—if we respond to God and cry out to Him on His terms, right, just like the incredible happened. In Elijah's day, the incredible will happen in your day. Not that it's going to rain or stop raining, okay? The incredible is this. God will restore you. That's the incredible. That's the incredible. We deserve the righteous wrath of a holy God. None of us deserved to be saved. and God saved us. Now as believers, when we find ourselves in these spiritual funks, none of us deserve to be restored. But if we cry out to God on his terms, he'll restore us. That is more (laughs) incredible. That is a greater act as far as I'm concerned on God's part than causing the rain to stop or causing the rain to begin. Let's pray. Father, I, um, I know that there have been times in my life when I found myself um, spiritually weak. And worn out and exhausted, and low. And I know for me, Father, um, most of those times it has been a result of my sin. And I know God that that's not always um, that's not always the case. But Lord, it's it's my desire, Father, that you would one keep us, um, keep all of us, Father, from that. God, I I want to be near. I want to be near to you, Lord, um, Father. I want all of us be near to you. I want all of us to be, to be growing um, in holiness, moment by moment, day by day, hating our sin more and more, and and loving Christ you, Jesus, more and more, and, and clinging ever, ever, ever so more tightly to you. But I know that that's not always the case. I know that circumstances, various trials will happen that will seek to draw us away from you, seek to drag us down. And I know, Lord, that there will be sin in our life that will do the, the same thing. And God, I pray that when we find ourselves in those positions, that you would, you would grant us, continue granting us a repentant heart. That we, would, that we would cry out to you in repentance if it's needed and if it's not we would cry out to you for help nonetheless we would cry out to you for restoration and lord that we wouldn't go it alone that after we've cried out to you that we would turn who would turn to our pastors seeking their, their prayers their guidance their care and their love God, that we would also turn to one another as a church family. That we would confess our sins to one another for the purpose of holding one another accountable. That we we would be kept from these things. That we would be kept from sin when it's sin. And that we would also hold one another up in prayer. God. Lord, it is my desire. And it's my desire mostly because it glorifies you. This is the pattern that you've given us. This is the plan that you've given us. And when we are obedient, Father, it brings you much glory, much honor, much praise. And Father, I want you to be glorified. But also, Lord, I know it's for our good. It's for my good. Lord, it's, it's, it's for the good of us here, this, this church. Lord, you know how much I love these people, and you know how much I know Randy loves these people as well, Father. And we want to see you glorified, but we want to see them edified. We want to see them sanctified, Jesus. We want to see them become more and more like you. We want to see them come here, be lifted up, and then go out those doors and and proclaim your glorious gospel to all who would hear. And again, we know that glorifies you. And that is what we want. Jesus, we do love you. We do praise you. You you alone are worthy. You alone are worthy.